welcome to Mostly Books Meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together we are the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. In the podcast this week, I'm speaking to Sunday Times best-selling author Ruth Hogan. Ruth's first novel, The Keeper of Lost Things, was published in 2017. It became a Sunday Times bestseller, was chosen as a Richard and Judy book club pick, and was published in over 30 countries. She then went on to publish two more books, The Wisdom of Sally Redshoes and Queenie Malone's Paradise Hotel, both of which helped to establish her as the queen of uplifting fiction. Ruth's latest book, Madame Barova, was published on the 1st of April this year and doesn't disappoint. Ruth, welcome to Mostly Books Meet. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. Well, it's a delight to have you. As I said to you before we actually started recording today, I'm a huge fan of your books and so are all of my customers in the shop. It's delightful to be able to have you on here today to be able to chat about your latest one. Oh, it's just it's so nice to hear. Thank you. I'd like to start off by going back to your childhood. You were born and grew up in Bedford with your parents and your older sister. That's right. What do you remember about your childhood? I remember it being very happy, quite a traditional background and childhood. But the thing I remember most is that our house was full of books. My mum and dad were both avid readers. So there were always groaning bookshelves everywhere. And also, I remember having bedtime stories every night. I can't ever remember going to bed and not having a bedtime story. And my dad was a bit of a performer so he used to do all the voices and I remember him reading in particular Treasure Island and he particularly liked doing all the pirate voices and the parrot and all of that stuff and I remember that my mum taught me to read before I went to school so I was actually reading before I went to school and I also remembered that they enrolled us in the local children's library libraries have played a huge part in my life and I still think they're just such an amazing resource and I remember going into the children's library in Bedford was one big room and the two things I remember is the smell of books and because I'm very old the clunk of the date stamp in the books because it was before computers and everything and you used to take your books up to the librarian lady and she would stamp your book so there'd be that lovely clunk noise I remember it well. Yeah. It's funny like how prominent that kind of memory is. And also it was so exciting because it was just like loads of free books. I mean, obviously you didn't get to keep them, but it was a chocolate box of books. You could just go in and choose anything you wanted and read them. So I loved reading as a child. And I think it was because you could go into this little world of your own and just be there. And it was fantastic. And I absolutely loved it. And being able to read, I remember my dad saying, I mean, he grew up during the war and he said, whatever else was going on, he used to read books under the covers of his bed at night and he could just escape somewhere else. And that's how I've always thought about books is there are so many different worlds that you can escape into and try. God, that's quite an image of your dad during the war, escaping the madness of what's going on through the pages of books. Yeah. That's yeah. just wonderful, isn't it? And I think both he and my mum 
passed that love of reading and that love of books on to me. But yeah, I always have this picture of him under his bedclothes with a torch reading comics and books and stuff. It's funny. I was watching a TV program last night watching there was a young girl that was doing that. And I, I was saying to my partner, I used to do that all the time. Yeah. I have memories of my parents like running up the stairs trying to catch me because yeah. they knew yeah. I was doing it. Yeah, it was after lights out and you were supposed to be asleep, but... But you had to just read that that next day. one more chapter, one more chapter, one more chapter. <laughs> so true. I understand your mum worked in a bookshop. She did, yeah. So she kind of got to feed my habit because I had a serious reading habit. And so it was a good job she did work in a bookshop. The combination of the library. The library and the bookshop. And when she worked there in the school holidays, she used to take me into the bookshop. And it was a proper independent bookshop then. And the staff room was this tiny little room at the top of a staircase that looked out onto this kind of alleyway in town. And I just remember sitting there for hours on my own, very, very happy reading books while she was at work. You know, that was childcare in those days, but it was heaven to me because it meant that I had all these books to read and I just sat there in this room and every now and again, I could look out at the people passing by. But when I wasn't doing that, I had my head stuck in a book. So it was perfect. God, I would have absolutely loved that as a child. Best of both worlds with your parents, but you get to read books. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) So I understand you had a bit of an obsession with abandoned houses, ghosts and cemeteries. Tell me about that. I always used to, I used to love that. And again, I blame my parents in part because we used to do this thing on Sunday afternoons where you would go for a drive when I was a kid. And there were two favourite destinations. One were um, cemeteries and churchyards. And then the other one was abandoned houses. So if we came across an abandoned house, we would go in and have a look round. It kind of (laughs) sounds a bit strange now, but at the time it was perfectly normal. And I always loved cemeteries because I think they're fascinating places because, again, they're full of stories. And, you know, the tombstones, they've got an entire life story in a few sentences or a few dates. And I never found them spooky. I always found them just fascinating and really interesting. Do you know, when I've, I've travelled a fair bit, and when I was over on one of my trips, I went through a real phase of going on tours of yeah. cemeteries. See, I totally understand that. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember somebody said to me, oh, you should go on this tour. And I was thinking at the time, that sounds a bit sombre and a bit depressing. But actually, like you say, totally fascinating. And you kind of get sucked into it and find out about all these people and your mind kind of goes all over the place about what they've done. Absolutely. I mean, the tours of Highgate Cemetery are just brilliant. I've been two or three times and every time you go, you get different stories. Depending on your tour guide, you get to hear different stories. And I just think it's fascinating. I was going to say, is the obsession still there? It sounds like you're still pretty enthusiastic about it these days. When we bought the house that we're in now, I was absolutely thrilled because it's 10 minutes walk away from our local huge Victorian cemetery. And I was so excited. And my husband said, well, it's not really a selling point for me. I said, well, no, maybe not, but it is for me. <laughs> yeah, so I get to wander around there and, and I quite often take the dogs. It's just a, it's a beautiful place to go. And it's not just the tombstones and what have you. It's full of nature and trees and there's a badger set and foxes. So it's just a really, really beautiful place. Not morbid at all. I'm totally not weird about it at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm relaxing as well. So... Just talking a little bit more about where you are today. I understand you still live in Bedford, is that correct? With yes. your husband now and yeah. three rescue dogs. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And obviously work full time as a writer. How is life for you? What's life like? How do you structure your days? 
what's Ruth's life like? A bit chaotic, to be honest with you. <laughs> a bit like my house, really. As you say, I have three rescue dogs and they're a huge part of my life. So the first part of every day is taking them for a walk and trying to get them tired enough so that I can come back and actually work during the day. <laughs> uh, but I still... I mean, I'm trying to think when I stopped being a part-time receptionist, which was my last job, I still wake up some days and can't quite believe that I get to be a full-time writer because it's just a dream job for me. It involves books, it involves me writing, which I absolutely love. And I get paid to be me and to do the stuff I love, which is the thing that most people dream of. I remember when I was a kid thinking, how do you get a job that you actually really, really like? So few people have jobs that don't feel like jobs. And my job doesn't Mm -hmm. feel like a job. It just feels like I get paid to live in my own little world and make my own world through the books that I write. I'm not one of these particularly organized writers. I know there are people who say, right, well, I sit down at nine o'clock and then I write for two hours and then I have a break and then I write for two more hours and then I do some exercise. I've never been like that because if I'm caught up in what I'm writing or if I'm caught up in what I'm researching, the dogs are my safety net because they will let me know when I've been sitting doing something for too long. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, I think I would just keep going and keep going because I get so involved in what I do. But I also have the flexibility if I wake up in the middle of the night, which I quite often do, with an idea or I think I'm not going to go back to sleep, I've got the flexibility to just come downstairs and carry on writing or researching or exploring ideas for books. So it's very flexible. But I always say to people, I have never worked such long hours and so hard as I do now. But because it's something I love, it doesn't feel like work. I was about to say exactly that. Yeah, once you're doing something for yourself and that you believe in, then it doesn't, does it? The thought of actually, I think a lot of people when they're in that kind of situation, they're told to kind of switch off or relax, but you never do because it's not a relaxing experience. No, I mean, it must be the same for you having your wonderful bookshops. Mm -hmm. It's your life. It becomes your life. There isn't a separation between your life and your job. It becomes the same thing, but in the nicest possible way. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I totally agree. And I can also relate to having that kind of thought process of how lovely would it be to have a job that you love so much that doesn't feel like work? Because I certainly used to have a job that did feel like work. (laughs) And now I have a job where (laughs) I work very hard, but it it doesn't ever feel like it, which is amazing. Obviously, we're going through some strange times at the moment. We're recording this in the middle of April 2021. So we are over a year into the coronavirus pandemic. And obviously, coronavirus has had a major impact on a lot of people. But for you personally, it's had a very significant impact, hasn't it? I understand that you lost your parents as a result of coronavirus. Yeah, yeah. They both died at the beginning of the first lockdown. So it was... so sorry to hear that. Thank you. It was really hard. Not only were we entering this whole other strange world, but I was an orphan literally within six weeks. So my dad died in hospital and then six weeks later to the day my mum died in a care home. So it was incredibly difficult. And I think one of the things I found very, very difficult was that the funerals were so perfunctory. My mum's funeral was 15 minutes long. And nobody from the family was allowed to say anything because it just had to be quick. And Mm -hmm. I felt that it was so disrespectful. And I, you know, it was nobody's fault. Nothing could have been done about it. And it was right at the beginning. So they weren't live streaming funerals or anything like that. 
but it just felt like I lost so much in such a short space of time. And then I wasn't able to honour their wishes and do what they had wanted to be done for their funerals. But I suppose the thing that kept me going was that right up until their last days, they were both saying, have you finished the book yet? You've got to finish the book. You must finish the book. So in many ways, the continuing with Madame Barova, which was written under such challenging circumstances, was a way of honouring them. It was perhaps the only way I could honour them at the time, was to make sure that the book did get finished. I am very proud that I did manage to finish it. And I just hope it's a fitting tribute to them because it was what they wanted me to do. My mum, one of the last things she said to me before she died was, you have to live your life. You have to go on and live your life. And so I feel that I need to honour that. And part of that was finishing the book. That's just incredible. I mean, the resilience that you've had to show over the last year. I mean, a lot of people losing one parent in any circumstance, but particularly as a result of this of coronavirus would have been awful but to have lost two in such close succession and then what's really lovely is you're, you're viewing it as you can see something positive out of it out of what's a terrible situation the book that you've just mentioned your latest book Madame Barova just come out and it's absolutely delightful so I do think it is a totally fitting tribute to your parents thank you Thank you. Let's talk about that book because that's an obvious link to it. So perhaps for anyone that hasn't read it, maybe you could just talk about what the book is and where the idea came from. Yeah, the central character, Madame Barova, is a tarot reader, palmist and clairvoyant. And as the book opens, she is retiring. She's leaving her booth on the Brighton Seafront after 50 years and she's retiring. But before she does that, she has to fulfill a promise that she made a long time ago. The book opens with her holding two brown envelopes, which contain this promise that she has to deliver. And the other main character in it is a woman called Billy, who has lost her university job. She's got divorced, and her parents have just died. And she finds something out which kind of questions her whole identity. I'm not going to say what it is because that's a spoiler. I'm trying to be very careful here. (laughs) Um, And the story is really how Billy in search for answers, she gets led to Madame Barova's door. But the story starts 50 years previously. So it's a dual narrative and it's two time frames. So some of it is set in Brighton in the 1970s, not only in Madame Barova's booth, which is on the seafront, but also in a holiday camp. So there's seaside entertainers and there's this world of the holiday camp, as well as Madame Barova's booth. And Billy and Madame Barova have to kind of go back and revisit this to work out how their paths cross and Madame Barova has to fulfil this promise that she said that she would do many years ago. So that's the basis of the story. It was partly inspired by a real-life tarot reader, palmist and clairvoyant called Eva Petrolengo, who worked in Brighton and was very famous. I believe she's still alive. She actually read palms and cards for celebrities and royalties, and her booth is still on the seafront. Oh, wow. And I saw it once when I was in Brighton, which is a place that I absolutely love. And that was 
kind of the beginning of, oh, maybe I could write a book about that. Because I've always been fascinated by tarot and palm reading and clairvoyancy and things like that. And the great thing about being a writer is you get to choose. You can write about things that you're passionate about or that you're interested about. So that was part of the idea. Gives you a great opportunity to really dig into something that you might have had a a passing interest in, but to actually find out more about it. That's right. And I really, really did get carried away with this book because one of the things that I decided I wanted to do, when I write, I try to write as knowledgeably and respectfully as possible about the subjects that I'm writing about. So I try to do my research really thoroughly. And I knew that if my main character was going to be a tarot reader and a palmist and clairvoyant, that I needed to explore that really in depth so that I could write comfortably about it. So I went for some readings. I asked around and found somebody who had been recommended by lots of people. And I went and had some readings with her. And I had the whole shebang. I had tarot reading. I had a crystal ball reading. I had a spiritual reading. I had my palms wow. read. And it was absolutely fascinating and scarily accurate. That was the thing that got me. It was like, oh, okay, <laughs> this is a bit too close for comfort. And once I got to know the lady who did the readings a bit more, I asked her if she would be a sort of a consultant on the book. If I could give things to her to read and she would keep me on track and she was very kind and she said she would do that but she also told me that she taught tarot so I thought that would be a really good thing for me to do because what I wanted to do was not just be able to write about the mechanics of readings but to know what it felt like and I don't think you can do that until you've actually done it yourself. So I went on a beginner's course and I learned how to read tarot Brilliant. in a kind of a basic way. And it was quite scary to start with because you have to sit and read for strangers. You get thrown in once you've got the basic knowledge. Obviously, then you've got to read for strangers. So I, I did that and I got completely hooked. So then I decided to do the advanced course. So I spent months and months studying and practicing and learning how to read tarot to a standard where I could actually charge for it. My teacher said to me, you're good enough now, you could actually set up your own business doing readings. And have you done that? Have you had people come and have readings? Well, unfortunately... COVID got in the way <laughs> of course, because we had planned to do some book events where I would do some readings as well. But I did, before lockdowns started, I did do an event. I did a summer fate where I did an event and it was my first outing as a proper tarot reader. And I was a bit nervous because you never know what's going to happen. And my first client sat down and she wanted a general reading. And one of the things that we were taught was you can't change what the cards say. You have to be honest about what they say. So even Mm -hmm. if they say something that isn't very nice, you still have to say what it says, but you have to find a way of saying it. And of course, typical for me, one of the first cards that I laid for this woman was a death card. Oh, goodness. Now, death doesn't always mean death in tarot. It can mean a fresh start. It can mean a new beginning. But I laid it with a father card. So I thought, great, I'm going to have to say this. So I just said to her, I have a death card with a father figure. Does that mean anything to you? And she said, yes, my dad died a couple of weeks ago. Oh, my goodness. So that 
literally sent shivers up my spine. And I'm embarrassed to say, I didn't know whether to punch the air or enjoy. <laughs> I'd got it right. Like the first time I was doing a professional reading and I was like, yes, I got it right. But I was able to tell her a lot of positive stuff as well in her reading. So, but she was really touched. And she said to me, I can't believe that was the first thing you told me, because that's obviously the most important thing in my life at the moment is the fact that my dad's died. Yeah, that's unbelievable. So yeah, it was incredible. But also doing that enabled me to write about Madame Barova from her viewpoint, because I began to understand what it felt like to have people coming to you for answers and sharing their secrets with you and talking to you. Because it is a kind of a, a quid pro quo. When people come to you and ask questions, they inevitably tell you stuff about their lives as well. Mm-hmm. So it was really interesting for me and useful in writing Madame Brava that I have that experience. Yeah, I mean, the book, I found it fascinating that all of the kind of the narrative around the tarot readings and and also just generally the descriptions of the Brighton Seafront you know, then and now like you say, the fact that you've got the dual narrative, I really enjoy that in your books generally because and you've done that before, obviously. But I really like the fact that it kind of it moves the story around in different ways. It was so entertaining and so interesting as well as... Oh, thank know, you. Really, really good. So, yeah, it's good. So we obviously talked earlier about the loss of your parents and this book has been dedicated to them. That must have been incredibly hard to keep going whilst you were dealing with all that with the writing. But I understand you also had some issues with your hand as well, which must it just sounds like you had a lot to deal with when you were doing this book. Yes. Yeah, it was it felt at times like wading through treacle. And I had a problem the way that I write, I always write in longhand. So I will always do my first draft in longhand and then I will transpose it onto the laptop and that's my first edit. And I do it chapter by chapter, which is quite a weird way of doing it, but it works for me. And I had a problem with my hand. And initially I thought, oh, it's just tired, it'll go away. But then it was obvious that it wasn't going to go away. So I went to see a physio and they said, it's a really quite unusual thing to have. It's called de Quervin's. Yeah, I know. It sounds impressive though, doesn't it? (laughs) So anyway, I had some acupuncture, but they told me you have to rest it. You have to put a brace on it and you can't write for several weeks which was so frustrating and people kept saying to me do that recording thing I'm sure there's a name for it where you can just speak into your computer or whatever and it writes it for you but I have my way of writing and I tried it and it just didn't work I just could not get on with the whole dictating thing so I literally had to just wait until I was given the all clear to start writing again which was so frustrating (laughs) Oh, I bet. But we got there in the end. Yes, and your book is lovely. So I'm glad you did. So it's out in hardback now. It came out on the 1st of April. Um, And as I say, we have it and um, it will be featured. Yeah, everyone kept saying to me, is it April Fool's? (laughs) And it kind of felt like it. After what I'd been through, it kind of felt like it. Uh, and it's, it was lovely though because it came out just before all of the shops reopened so yeah. it must be nice yeah. because I know uh, I, I really feel for all the writers that book, whose books came out you know this time last year that's so difficult it's so difficult to launch a book when the bookshops aren't open yeah so we've been really interested in kind of people's reading and writing behavior during lockdown during the last 12 months as a whole we found that people are either really turning to reading and have really kind of got involved with it even more so than they have before or 
alternatively, they've kind of gone the other way. People tend to fall in one of two camps. Do you fall into either camp? And if so, which one is it? I've always read loads and loads of books. If I haven't got a book on the go, I just feel bereft. And as a writer, I'm very lucky because I get sent loads of pre-publication proofs. So I've always got lots of books. But one of the things that I have started to explore during lockdown is audible books, which is something that I haven't particularly done before. But now if I'm doing something boring, then I'll always have an audible book or a podcast on the go. And that's been a real discovery for me. And I love it. I love the fact that I can be doing something boring, but listening to a book (laughs) or a podcast is just great. So now I always have more than one thing on the go. I've got my physical books. I could never give up on physical books. I love the feel of you're holding a book in your hands and the smell of a book. and, and, And that's why I love bookshops. You go in a bookshop and there's that smell, isn't there? There's a smell yes. of books, which they should bottle it. Honestly, I'd buy it. I'd wear that. <laughs> so, yes, I've continued to read voraciously as usual, but I've also now moved on to audible books and podcasts. You're absolutely right. We renovated our house last year and I think I was fitting carpets or something at one point and just absolutely driving myself mad. But it was all OK because I had my book on the go. And I think there was a time where people kind of viewed slightly crazily in my opinion audiobooks as being kind of a cheats way to to read books but I actually just think they're a really delightful addition to the world of books and like you say you can go running with them you can be driving you can be doing household things garden things and you've got that going so I just think they're fantastic yeah I agree with you it's an addition rather than an or it's adding something because I would never give up on physical books. As I say, I love them. But the thing about audible books as well is that you can have them in quite small chunks. So if you've got like 10 minutes where you'll be doing something, then you can just have a quick 10 minutes where you're... And I would never just sit down and read a book for 10 minutes because I like to sit down and relax and maybe, you know, read for an hour or something. But with audible books, you can just have 10 minutes or 15 minutes when you're doing something else and just listen to it that way, which is great. Yeah, agree. What was the last book you read? The last book I finished was a pre-publication proof because I have a huge pile of them that I'm trying to work (laughs) my way through. And it's called The Secret Life of Albert Entwistle. And it comes out in May this year. And I absolutely loved it. It's the story of a postman who is forced to retire. I mean, he comes to statutory retirement age, but his job has become his life. He lives on his own and his retirement prompts him to kind of have a look at his life. And he's gay, but he's never come out to any of his colleagues at work. He kind of keeps it as a, a secret. But then he decides on his retirement to go in search of his first boyfriend, his first ever boyfriend that he had when he was a teenager, who was the love of his life. And they parted under very bad circumstances. So he decides to grab his life, what's left of it, and go off in search of his first boyfriend. And it is the most joyful book. It's very poignant. And there are some sad bits in it. But this is definitely uplit. And Albert is such an endearing character. And I love books that are character driven particularly where the protagonist is is an outsider in some way or another. I tend to write about those kind of people anyway, but I enjoy reading about them. And this book is just charming. And it left me with a huge smile on my face. So that was the last book I, I read. 
It does sound brilliant. I was about to say to you, it's funny you drew that comparison because you describe it. It did make me think this actually really reminds me of some of your books. Yeah, and it's interesting because it's by a guy called Matt Kane. And I was asked a question recently about Uplit. And somebody said to me, why is it that Uplit only seems to be written by women? No, that's not true. And I said, no, ah, it's not true. <laughs> because I know at least two men, I would say, that write Uplit. I mean, I think that Mike Gale, his books would fall under the category of uplet. And The Secret Life of Albert Entwistle definitely is uplet. So, Yeah, we've also, um, somebody else we've interviewed for the podcast, Matson Taylor, he wrote The Miseducation of Evie Epworth. And I'd say that definitely falls into the same category as well. I think probably for the benefit of anybody who's listening that doesn't understand what we mean by uplet. I mean, I certainly have my perspective. What, how would you define it? Well, it's a mystery to me in many ways because I keep getting called the Queen of Uplet, which is lovely. I, I, you know, I'm quite happy to be the Queen of anything. I think that's an amazing <laughs> accolade. As long as I get to wear a crown, that's fine. I'd like a nice sparkly tiara or something. But it's defined, I believe, as uplifting literature. So my definition of it would be books that leave people feeling positive or hopeful. And I think sometimes it's misconstrued and people think that it's very light, fluffy, sweet literature. But most of the uplet that I've read, and certainly that I write, is light and shade. So sad things happen, as in real life, but also good things happen. Whenever I write a book, I always think, your reader gives up hours of their life to read this book. The last thing I want is for them to go away feeling depressed or unhappy mm. or miserable. I want them to go away, even if sad things have happened in the book, I want them to go away feeling that there's always hope. So I would say it's hopeful literature. It's literature that makes people feel positive about their lives and feel hopeful. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right trying to explain to customers exactly what we mean because in the shop we are massive massive fans of what we call uplit you know your books are fantastic Libby Page Beth O'Leary Mattson Taylor they're all books that I think would fall into that category yes Um, and I just think I think it's that kind of combination of incredibly well written because they are all very well written literary books but with a really lovely kind of light feel to them so that you don't feel like you're having to kind of study the books it just happens and and the story kind of takes you with it but it does like you say leave you at the end of it kind of feeling like yeah it just makes you feel good that's that's why I I, I love them I always think it's like going to see a film you want to come out feeling uplifted I hate going to see a film and if you don't know and it's going to have a really miserable ending and you don't realize that and then you just come out feeling really really depressed yeah You didn't want it to turn out like that. And then you think, no, I didn't want that ending. I wanted it. I wanted at least one person to come out alive and be happy. (laughs) Um, So I have a theory uh, talking about books. For anyone that's a reader, I think that everybody that reads books has got a book that has had a major impact on them. And that could be professional, it could be personally, um, that they can pinpoint that 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 book's had do you have a book like that and if so what impact did it have I do have a book like that and it's a book that usually when I tell people they've never heard of and it's not one of those great worthy books like lots of people say oh it, it was To Kill a Mockingbird or which I loved and read and it did have an impact on my life but the book that I always go back to is called Mornings at Seven and it's by an English writer called Eric Malpass 
And the reason I always go back to this book is because it's the book that made me want to be a writer. I've no idea where I got my original copy from. And I know that I was quite young when I read it. I was probably in my teens. And it was probably one of the hundreds of books that were on my parents' bookshelves. And I've still got my original copy, which is literally falling to pieces. I mean, the pages (laughs) are falling out. I've read it so many times. And it's a very gentle story about three generations of one family living together in a country house in rural England. But it's got such a sense of time and place and it's so beautifully observed that it drew me into this world. I wanted to go and live with this family. (sighs) You know, it's like a three-generational family. There's The youngest is a seven-year-old boy and he lives with his parents and his dad's a writer. But his grandparents also live there and his two aunts and his great aunt. So there's this tremendous cast of characters all living in the same house. And it's about how their lives intertwine and what they get up to. And it's full of comedy and it's full of tragedy. And it's just about it's a gentle story, but it's so beautifully written. And the opening line of this book is Dawn and a cold porridge sky. And that has stayed with me forever because as soon as I think of cold porridge, I can see what that sky looks like. And the book is like that all the way through. There's another part where the seven-year-old boy is talking to his aunt, who's very serious, and she's a school teacher. And she's reading in bed, and he does this thing in the mornings. He tramps around to all the bedrooms at about six o'clock in the morning, waking everyone up to find out what they're doing. And they would all rather be left alone, actually. But he kind of does this (laughs) tour of all the bedrooms. And she's reading a book called Psychopathology in Everyday Life. And he asks her what she's reading and she repeats this title. And the sentence is something like, the syllables tumbled into Gaylord's mind like coal down a coal chute. And I just thought that was such a perfect way of describing these words falling into this little boy's head. And he's got no idea what they mean. And they've all just tumbled in there. And then he's going to try and work out what they mean. So it was the way that the book was written. It was so clever and the descriptions are beautiful, but I just wanted to be able to emulate that in some way. I wanted to be as good as that. And that book is something that I still return to because I still learn something from it every time I read it. It sounds fantastic. When you say you can't remember where you got it from, obviously you think it might have come from your childhood. So did you read that at quite a young age or did you? Yeah, I I think I was probably in my early teens when I first read it. And I just thought, I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to paint a picture with words in the same way that this author does. That's amazing. Because he literally drew me into this world. And I was there. I was absolutely there. And I was living with this family. And I was going through everything with them. So I didn't feel like an outsider. I actually felt like I'd gone into that world and I was experiencing it rather than reading about it. And I think for a writer, that's a tremendous skill to have. Yes, yeah. an amazing skill. So that was that made me want to write and it made me want to be as good as that as well. Brilliant. Just coming to the end of the questions that I have for you. I've realised by talking about that book and the fact that you found it during your childhood that we got distracted earlier on when we were talking about your childhood. And I never actually asked you the question about the first book that you remember reading, which I'm always fascinated by. So do you remember what the first book was you read or 
given that you were such a voracious reader, is it just kind of loads of different books in your mind you can't really remember? There are loads and loads of different books. I remember one of the first books that made an impression on me was Green Eggs and Ham by Dr. Seuss. But I think that was not so much the reading of it. It was the repetition. It was the sound. It was the musicality of it because I loved that repetition. I think a lot of kids do. That's why they like poetry. But I think books that I remember reading on my own, I loved the Famous Five books. And again, it was because I wanted to be a member of the Famous Five. I wanted to go on all of their adventures with them. Which one did you want to be? Well, you see, I didn't want to be Anne because she got to do all the housework and stuff. (laughs) I wanted to be George because she got to do all the kind of rough and tumble stuff, which I felt I I would be better at that. (laughs) And also I wanted to be in charge of Timothy the dog, obviously. Yes. But I just, I loved those books. And then the other one that I really remember is The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And I wanted to be Lucy. And again, I think it was that book literally takes you to another world. So, I mean, for me, all good books have that wardrobe door. You open the first page, you step through the wardrobe door and there you are in a completely new world. But The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, you actually have that. And I just thought that was a beautiful device and it took me away to this snowy world. And I was Lucy meeting Mr. Tumnus and all of that stuff. I absolutely loved it. So that one obviously made a real impression on me. And I remember trying to read it at the dinner table and my mum prizing it out of my fingers. No, you're not reading at the table. Because I would have just read everywhere if I was allowed to. I'd just be walking around with a book glued to my nose. I still do that occasionally. Guilty as charged. You've chosen some of my favourite books, though, The Lion, the Witch, the Wardrobe. It's funny, just last week, obviously, we just reopened our shops. We're recording this on the 19th of April. The shop's been open for a week. And somebody came into my shop last week and bought the entire collection for their grandchild. So it's just lovely to see they're still going, they're still being sold, and people, new generations are meeting them. Yeah, that's great. Well, so many brilliant books. And and as I say, your book is definitely one of them. I love your books, and I'm very excited to have Madame Brova in the shop. I, I don't think I said this to you before we started recording but when I got my proof of your latest book I was kind of off the scale excited and I think I put something on our shop social media account because I just find them so delightful and I will be telling everyone that comes in that they need to read it oh thank you so much that's (laughs) it's so nice to hear that because we've all been kind of beavering away in our isolation bubbles and you launch a book and all you've got is either social media or people telling you because I haven't done any book events for this book at all. Mm-hmm. And as I say, normally I'd be out there doing them and I'd plan to do tarot readings and all sorts. So I kind of feel that I'm a bit separated from it. So it's really lovely to hear that you enjoy them. And yeah, yeah we certainly do. And thank you for being such a brilliant bookshop and having a book called The Borzoi Bookshop. I can't believe it. <laughs> This is obviously the Mostly Books podcast, but for those of you who don't know, we've just actually had a new addition to the Mostly Books family, which is the Borzoi Bookshop in Stow on the World. Am I allowed to say that? Yes, you absolutely are. It's very exciting. (laughs) The reason why that's relevant, of course, is that there is a nod to a Borzoi in your new book. What a lovely uh, link. Ruth, it's just been absolutely lovely chatting to you. From the moment we met when you popped into the shop to chat to us about your books a couple of years back, it's been like I said, I've been following your career and I think your books are fabulous and your latest is no exception. So thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time out and thank you for such a delightful book. Well, thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been so lovely chatting to you. So thank you very much. 
All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.